It's a joy to be with you here this morning. My name is Jerry, one of the teaching pastors here. And uh, good morning, church. Everybody doing all right? We feeling good? Wide awake and alert? Enthusiastic? All right. How'd you like that uh, six-hour time span for a, for a preacher? Anybody? Can I get an amen to that? We should do that on Sunday mornings. Anybody here? Anybody? Nobody. Oh, wonderful. But notice even at six hours, he usually goes overtime. So we are in good company, apparently, Brian and I. Brian more than I uh, on going over time. No, I'm just, I'm just joking with you. Uh, encourage you to turn to Daniel chapter 1 in your copy of scriptures or on your uh, handheld device. We are going to be spending uh, all of our time here in the first three chapters of Daniel. And I have a couple other passages of scripture that are not in that uh, first three chapters. And those we will show on the screen. But we encourage you to follow along in your own copy. And uh, maybe for some of you that are visiting, met several uh, first time guests this morning. Um, just want to give a little bit of an update on what we've been studying, what we've been talking about this year. Uh, we're nearing the tail end of this series called Thread. And basically we started in Genesis and we're going all the way to Revelation the entirety of scripture and we're talking about how all of that ties together in one grand story. And we've talked about the upper story, God and his sovereignty, and the lower story, which is the different narratives and, and uh, different situations in scripture where God shows himself. And then we talk about your story and how that impacts and affects how we live. And an amazing thought for us this morning is just the whole idea that God's story intersects our story. He allows us to be a part of it. And that's great news for us this morning. And I hope that uh, your mind is awake and alert and we can be focused as we dive into an amazing, amazing account, narrative here of some people that really um, stood up for God in a pretty incredible way. So a couple of thoughts that I want to share with you by way of just quotes or just kind of mantras that we want to wrap our minds around this morning. And the first one is simply this. The very first one is we want to challenge you to display God's glory through your story. Display God's glory even through your story. And as you walk out of these doors at the end of the hour, if you don't remember anything of a couple days from now or later on this afternoon or next week, I want you to think about that concept. That here's my story, here's my narrative, here's my little world that I'm walking through. But in one way or another, I can display God's glory even through this. Why? Because in Romans chapter 8 Verse 28, we get a concept that says God is all about his glory and our good. Everything that happens, no matter what it is, good or bad, God's purpose in it is his own glory. But it's also our good. When we think about the idea of glory, uh, the Hebrew word is a very complex one, but it carries along the idea of some sort of shimmering, burning brightness, almost like a fire or a flame. That's one of the key meanings in the Old Testament behind God's glory. You see that in 
the life of Moses, right, in Exodus chapter 33, where he says to God, show me your glory, I just want to see you. And it says that God went by and Moses had to be hidden because it was so bright and so amazing, this inferno, that he couldn't even look at it and live. That's the idea behind God's glory. See that in the Old Testament as well, where there was a, a giant pillar of fire that led the Israelites by night, right? And so when we think about that idea of glory, those are some of the ideas that come into our mind. I remember back when I was uh, first year in college, I was home um, for, the, uh, for the summer, and I thought I was in love with this girl. And um, I was sitting out, and I was talking to God. My parents had gone to sleep. I was laying out in our hammock in our backyard in New Jersey, looking up at the sky. And I'm just praying, and I'm just talking to God. And there was just a slight little cloud co cover. But all of a sudden, these clouds just kind of lit up and started glowing. And the most eerie thing that I've ever seen. And so I'm looking up, and I was right in the middle of praying. I'm not even exaggerating. God, show me what to do. This, this girl, she's like my dream weaver. She's just incredible, and I don't know if you want me to date her or not date her, but tell me what's going on. And all of a sudden, this cloud starts to light up like a giant inferno. And I'm like, God, is that you? It was crazy, and I knew that there was something supernatural going on. Later to find out the next day that about 20 miles away, this giant oil refinery had blown up in the middle of the night. And that literally was the reflection of it. It was all over the news. I'm like, oh, well, it worked for me anyway. But the point is, God's glory, that radiance, that attractiveness, that's what we want to display even through our story. And we know from Romans chapter 8, verse 28, that God wants that uh, attention. He deserves that attention and that glory. And anything that he allows into our lives will be a potential for that and also for our good. And that's important to recognize as we dive into this, what perhaps for some of you is kind of a kid's story, right? As we talk about Daniel and we talk about his three friends Maybe if you grew up in a church context, you remember this story from a long time ago. Or if you've watched VeggieTales cartoons growing up. This is familiar territory for many of us, right? But we need to look at it under a new light of how does this connect to us and where does Jesus play a part in this whole equation. So to start things out, we need to recognize that the, the kingdom of Israel was in deep trouble. Uh, they had been invaded three different times by, uh, by the rulers of um, Babylon. And this one in particular in 586 uh, BC was incredibly treacherous. The king's name was Nebuchadnezzar. And he was a ruthless tyrant. Probably the most powerful man in the world at that time. The kingdom of Babylon was very advanced as far as education and the arts and uh, wealth. And they had conquered all these other nations and they invaded Jerusalem and they sacked and destroyed Jerusalem. They invaded the temple of God. You remember when I spoke last to you 
three weeks ago, I believe, and we talked about Solomon and how Solomon built this incredible temple filled with gold and how Solomon called all the people of Israel to come and to bring their necklaces and their earrings and all their, their incredible, uh, valuable articles of uh, jewelry and melted them down and made this into God's permanent temple. That's the one. Well, the Babylonians went in there and destroyed everything. They carried off all of the gold. They melted down all of the gold that was in the temple and incredibly hot furnaces and instead made all of these graven idols and graven images to worship the Babylonian gods. And what's even worse is they demeaned the Israelites and the the Hebrew people. As a matter of fact, history tells us that they would make the Israelites play all of their worship songs, but for the Babylonian gods. All right, so just think about that concept. We just sang Cornerstone, and this is Amazing Grace, and and all these great songs, right? Imagine if our people were forced to change the name of the God, and we talked about, you know, uh, Satan alone, Cornerstone. Right? Like that's the kind of thing that they would make them do and profane the God of Israel. Secular sources of history tell us some of the people loved God so much and they didn't want to do it but they were forced to do it that they would break their fingers purposefully so that they couldn't play their instruments because they didn't want to defame the God of Israel in that way. But Nebuchadnezzar was also a very wise man and a very strong leader. And he recognized that the Hebrews, many of them, were very smart and that very learned. And he, uh, we see here in Daniel chapter 1, took the best of the best and decided that he was going to take them and put them in a special training. Daniel chapter 1, let's pick up the story in verse 3. It says, Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and then at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. And among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. So here we get the idea of the captives, of the people that were brought out. They picked out a few thousand of the brightest most best looking, showing all kinds of aptitude for learning. They picked out the best of the best, the All-Americans, and brought them in for a special three-year training period, picture like Harvard Business School, free education. And in addition, they were given all the finest king's uh, meats and also the, the king's wine. And so that's where Daniel and his three friends were in that privileged position why is that important for us here this morning I want you to hear this point for many of us we think oh you know uh, my temptation is going to be to doubt God during suffering or to get my mind off of God when circumstances around me are not good or when I'm in pain or when I'm fearful or when I don't have any money left in the bank that sort of thing or when I'm going to be persecuted right but listen to this for these four 
it was a little bit different. Look at this statement. For Daniel and his friends, potential suffering wasn't going to be the derailing force in their commitment to God. You know what was? Privilege. And as we think about that here in Apex and Cary and Morrisville and Raleigh and the surrounding areas of this incredible place that we live, I want you to look at that statement. And I want you to think about just by the fact of doing nothing, they had the road paved for them for comfort and for success. They were handpicked out of hundreds of thousands for this unique program. And the question was going to be, would they accept that privilege and that comfort or would they do something else? I don't think it's any surprise to anyone here that when we think about our lives and we think about our relative wealth and we think about our comfort in our convenience that in some respects the glory of God and our need for God and viewing God as our sufficiency is somewhat diminished as we think about the times in our lives if you're a Jesus follower this morning and you think about one of the times where I was closest to God where I was tracking with God and where I really saw God come through for me it probably wasn't when you were at the top of your game where you were comfortable where you were healthy where you were taken care of and you didn't have a care in the world right it was probably when you were suffering or when you were hurt or when you lost your job or when somebody you loved was diagnosed with cancer and you were questioning and you needed God then more than ever. But the enemy's tactic for these four was going to be, I'm going to tempt them with privilege and convenience and comfort. Well, the very first thing that happens to try and derail and discourage them is that they changed their name. In verse 7, the chief of the eunuchs gave them new names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. Hananiah, by the way, in Hebrew means Yahweh or God is gracious. And Shadrach means under the command of Aku, who is the moon god. Mishael in Hebrew means who is like Yahweh, and Meshach means who is as a coup is. It's kind of a fun little rhyme. Who is as a coup is, the moon god. Azariah means Yahweh has helped me, but Abednego means servant of Nebo, another Babylonian god. And Daniel means God is my judge, but Belteshazzar means Bel, another Babylonian god. Bel protect his life and man I wish we had the time or I wish we had a series in Daniel to talk about that later on right you remember Daniel in the lion's den and how that name carries along so much significance about his life needed to be protected right but for our purposes we're going to talk about the Hebrews and how names are so important and so valuable and they spend so much time on that and they make them significant in our culture not quite as much the name Jerry actually means wielder of the sword, which I think is pretty powerful, especially now that I'm a pastor, the sword of the spirit. See what happened there? See what I did there? My middle name's Dwight, which actually means um, blonde or white, maybe back in my younger years. But the, uh, the English meaning actually means uh, the goddess of wine. I'm not sure how you want to interpret that. Either I'm sweet and I get better with age, or I cause a lot of problems in excess of spending time with me. I don't know. But the point is, names are important, and now to demoralize 
them. Not only are they given this privileged position, but their names are completely changed to serve another God. So as we dive into the lives of these three in particular, we have to ask ourselves the question, so how did they display God's glory in their story? And how do we do that? What what can we learn from this narrative? Two simple points for you this morning. The first one's going to be up on the screen. It says you need to resolve in your heart to be holy. You need to resolve in your heart to be holy. Daniel chapter 1 verse 8. Here it is. But Daniel resolved. Underline that word. Highlight that word on your screen. Whatever you need to do. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And the account goes on that Daniel led the way along with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and said, you know what, we want a special diet. Listen, I know that you could get in trouble for this, but we do not want to defile ourselves. So please just give us water and just give us some vegetables and and we will be just as healthy and just as good as everybody else. I recognize the king's meat is really good. Filet mignon. And he's got the best of everything. But honestly, we cannot do that. Why? These had all been designated and prayed over and offered to all the Babylonian gods. And he resolved in his heart he wasn't going to participate. Think about all the excuses and justifications that Daniel and his friends could have had in this setting, right? Well, you know, God obviously allowed us to be chosen to be in this elite part, you know, because he wants us to make a difference way upstream. I mean, he wants us to be educated. He wants us to uh, have influence up here. So maybe from the inside, once we get up there near Nebuchadnezzar and he respects us and we're trained and we're learned and we're ruling, then maybe we can kind of share the gospel with him. So why would I want to put that in jeopardy by, you know, it's okay, God put us here. Think that could have been a justification for them? What if in their mind they're like, hey, you know what? We know that none of these gods are real anyway, and I wouldn't want that food to go to waste. There's a hundred ways that they could have justified it. But the resolve in their heart for holiness said, we are not going to do that. Another little piece that jumps out in here is that they had such a bond of friendship and camaraderie in community that it made it so much easier to stand up for what was right. How many times in our lives as you think about areas that you fall short in sin, uh, they're, they're taken that way because of isolation. Daniel was the one that stood up first and he's the one that was vocal about it, but man, his three boys were right there behind him. And they were all committed to it. And you can tell they just kind of were maybe making eye contact with each other. I'm not going to eat that. You're going to eat that? We're not going to eat that. Give me some broccoli, please. Give me some ice water and a breath mint, whatever. But bring it over here. But we're not doing that. And to do that in community is huge. And you'll see that theme coming up over and over and over again, right? All throughout scripture, even when we talked about Solomon, you remember? We talked about Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9 through 12 where he talked about a cord of three strands is so much stronger than if somebody is simply by themselves. When I was in college, God blessed me with a couple of really good guys, good roommates and good sweet mates. And my one, uh, one of my best friends in college, his father was a huge fan of the show Seinfeld. So he was also a very committed believer, which created a little bit of attention. 
But what he would do is he would record every single episode on these little things that were called VCRs. He would record every single episode and then any naughtiness or anything that was crass or profane, of which there was plenty, he would edit that out. And so he had edited versions of the entire how many seasons of the show Seinfeld. And so we would go over there and we would watch that and we would enjoy it and it was completely sanitized, but we would love that kind of humor and that kind of crafting of life where you take something and we, you know, our whole, our whole dorm suite was like one big Seinfeld episode. In the way we would talk, and one of the things that we talked about, we kind of, in our minds, penned this whole episode that really would have made a lot of money. I think it could work. But it was about friendship, and it tied in with the illustration of golfing for guys. So it's like, you know, sometimes you, you meet a, a new dude at work, or maybe he's a friend or a new friend or somebody, and that's like when you're teeing off with somebody. Right? So you get there and like you just go ahead and hit it. And if it doesn't go well, if he's kind of annoying or if he's just kind of weird, that's like it goes way off into the rough. Right? But maybe he's a pretty cool guy and you have some things in common and you know, you go do something together and you go out and watch a game or get some wings or whatever and it went pretty well. Then you, then you kind of land on the green, you know, or you land on the fairway. Go, all right, maybe I'll go out with that guy again. So then you go out again and now you're taking another little swing from there and you're on the fairway and maybe it goes really well and then he lands on the green. And that's like, man, these are really, I really have a connection. We're really close and whatever. But every now and again, you come across those very few people in your life where you even get to the next level, where you're on the green and you just line that thing up and everything's aligning and you just hit that and it goes right into the cup. And those are like your closest, most amazing friends that are right there. And then sometimes you go out with somebody, it's a complete disaster, and you just have to take a mulligan. You know, like, let's do something way over again, right? But the point is, we talked about that, and we're like, yeah, man, these are the guys that are in the cup with me, man. We're so close, and there's a lot of other people on a lot of other situations, but these guys are my brothers and my friends, and we experience everything together. We're as close as we possibly could be. And here for Daniel and his three friends, that's the kind of relationship that they had. In chapter 2, just to summarize for you, Nebuchadnezzar came out with this crazy dream that he had. And he called all these people that were part of you know, this, this elite training group. And he said, somebody needs to, number one, tell me what I dreamed. And number two, tell me the interpretation as well. It wasn't just, oh, here's what I dreamed. What does it mean? We're going to make it even a whole lot more difficult than that. And so what happens in chapter 3, skip down to verse 17, sorry, chapter 2, verse 17. As soon as Daniel heard about this, look what it says. Then Daniel went to his house and he made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. And he told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. So that Daniel and his companions may not be destroyed with everybody else. So he resolved in his heart that he wanted to be holy. And when he was given some situation, it wasn't, okay, I'm by myself here. All right, God, it's just me and you, and let's do it. Nope, it says immediately he went to his house. Guys, come here. You've got to help me with this. You've got to seek and beg and plead with God. Now's our chance. I've got these guys who I can share anything with. Do you have that in your life? Has God allowed you that opportunity to be open enough to share with somebody and to have somebody in that illustration, in that cup, with you to share the burdens and to pray for you and work together? It's 
part of resolving in your heart is bringing others into that story. So God gave them the answer, and it was amazing. But then in chapter 3, we have a whole nother situation that we just need to land on and close with. This big climax, this, this apex, this pinnacle of the story, specifically with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Because Nebuchadnezzar, again, with all this gold that he had melted, created this giant statue of himself that was 90 feet high. And he insisted on having the biggest worship gathering that, uh, that probably was ever known in that land. He brought in all the people. He brought in all the dignitaries. brought in all these different kinds of people to bow down and to worship the image of himself. And I want you to recognize in chapter 3 that Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego committed in their hearts that they were not going to bow when the band started to play. Let's pick up the story in verse 8. At that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and they maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn and the pipe and the lyre and the trigon and the harp and the bagpipe. Maybe some captives were there from Scotland as well, I don't know, but there it is. And every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Well, there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. The threat was there. Everyone must bow or you will be killed. And uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, by the way, one of the things that he insisted he be called was the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You can see that in chapter 2. It's written there. That's the way they address him. King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So here's Nebuchadnezzar saying, I'm having a giant worship service. I'm the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Everyone must bow. And if you don't, you will be thrown into a fiery furnace. For we know that they were resolved in their heart that they weren't going to do it. What gave them that confidence? I want you to write down this phrase. Scripture in history shapes our story. Scripture in history shapes our story. Now listen, you remember these guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were learned, they were knowledgeable, they knew scriptures probably from when they were young. And they just had to think back to what was written a hundred years ago by the prophet Isaiah. What gave them that confidence? They recognized scripture in the past and how that shaped their story. What am I talking about? Look at these three different passages from Isaiah written just a hundred years before that. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the war, and that's one of the kings of Israel, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house, that's in the temple, that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried off to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs or servants in the palace of the king of Babylon. 
A hundred years before this was predicted, he comes into Jerusalem with King Hezekiah. Yup, all this gold, all these storehouses, this is great. But guess what? Pretty soon, that's going to be carried off to Babylon. And what's further, O king, some of your very sons, some of the dignitaries, some of the relatives of you are going to serve in the courts of Babylon. What were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego doing? They were dignitaries. They were royal families. They were there. And I wonder, as this whole thing was unfolding, if they said to themselves, guys, could this be what Isaiah was talking about? Could we be the ones? Look at the next one. It says this, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you, God talking. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Oh, what's, what's the consequence going to be for not bowing to this graven image? Which we know, Exodus chapter 20, we learned all about the Torah and the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not bow to any graven image. We know that we're not going to do that. Oh, what's going to be the consequence? You're going to be thrown into a fiery furnace. Isaiah chapter 42. God already promised us that we would walk through the fire and we would not be burned. Could this be talking about us? Look at the last one. Isaiah 48. Behold, God says, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction, but for my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory, I will not give to another. My glory, my radiance, this inferno, this attention, this power, I will not give that to somebody else in the promises given You're going to go through the furnace of affliction. But God says, even so, I'm not going to share my glory with someone else. Knowing scripture in history shaped their story. That's what made them powerful. That's what made them confident. That's what made them say, sorry, we're not doing it. You can go ahead and throw us in the fire. Second main thing that we want to end with here. How do we display God's glory through our story? Number one, resolve in your heart to be holy. Number two, realize that God's glory is in the saving and in the suffering. It's in the saving, it's in the salvation, and it's in the suffering. Well, what do you mean? Chapter 3, verse 16. So Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to even answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. God's glory is in the saving. God's glory is in salvation. God's glory is in protection. And in this account, we see that that happened, right? Skip down a little bit down in the passage to verse 24. They didn't bow. They bound him. They threw him in the fiery furnace. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar was so astonished, he rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, wait, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they answered and said to the king, true, O king. Verse 25, and then he answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. 
Man, maybe for some of you here this morning, that's the verse that you need to highlight and you need to commit to your heart. You need to commit to memory and you need to write that down. The idea that in the fire, in the midst of the persecution, in the midst of what should be excruciating pain, Jesus was there. He protected them and he was right there by their side, right in the middle of it. And he rescued. There was salvation and that gives glory to God. But there's another half of it that's huge for us. It's not just in the saving, but it's also in the suffering. Well, what do you mean by that? We'll skip back up to verse 18. Because right after Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, yep, uh, God's going to protect us. Go ahead, throw us in the fire. Totally cool. God's going to protect us. We've got confidence in that, right? But verse 18, what does he say? But if not, be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image. But if not, I've got confidence. I'm going to step ahead. I'm not going to bow. God's going to protect us. God's going to save us. But they say, but even if he doesn't, even if we fry, that will give God glory as well. God's glory is not just in the saving. Sometimes that will happen. But God's glory can also be in the suffering. Do you see the difference there? Think about this phrase. God is either going to protect me or perfect me. You've got something big going on in your life right now. you got something that's keeping you up at night and you're anxious and you don't know where to go and you don't, you don't know what kind of uh, plan God has for you. I can give you the assurance here this morning that God is either going to protect you and heal you and, and rescue you or he's going to perfect you. Because one of the things that a furnace does, and you see this motif over and over in scripture, right? First Peter chapter 1, in James chapter 1, many other places. It talks about the fiery trials in our life that burn away impurities. And as we talk about giving God glory through our story, that could be in the victories, that could be in the high moments, that could be in the incredible moments, but it could also be in the dark moments. And you see that even in the life of Jesus, right? You see, even where he said, okay, God, in his time of agony, he said, okay, God, the time has come. Glorify your son right now in death so that I might be with you in that glory that I had before. Death can be glorious. Suffering can be glorious. And that same idea of even if he does not, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said Jesus had that same frame of mind, didn't he? In the garden, oh, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. In my humanity, I don't want to do it. I, don't want, I want you to come rescue me. I want you to come take me out of this situation. In my humanity, if it be possible, let this pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will. And if everything that happens in life is for God's glory and for our ultimate good, then I give that over to your hands. Glorify your son. So what does that mean for us this morning? What about you? Talk about 
the thread of Jesus and we talk about how he's pictured and makes an appearance here in the fire, in the rescue. We see him all over and we see him right there next to us even through the pain. So here we've got the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, right? With this giant furnace of radiance, fire. And he is defeated and showed up by the real King of Kings, Lord of Lords in radiance and glory. So what about you? Maybe God will be glorified in your life this morning by denying excess and comfort. And maybe it's been the privilege that has been keeping you from really glorifying God. Maybe for some it's going to be refusing to bow to the idols of our time. Money and success and comparison and ego and the size of our houses and how successful our kids are. Maybe for you it's going to be some level of suffering for doing what is right. Standing up no matter what the consequences are. Culturally with what you believe the Bible says to be true. No matter how co-workers or neighbors or even family members may think that you're bigoted and you're old fashioned. Scriptures used all throughout history to help shape your story. My challenge to you is what you're going through right now. Have you given that over to God and saying, okay, God, protect me or perfect me? Rescue, keep me safe, or allow me a level of harm so that it can burn out the impurities and you can refine. I don't pretend to know what's going on in this community, in this family, in this body of believers and those that are visiting that don't know God yet. But I can tell you that there is a God who deeply desires to stand with you in the fire and to be there with you and to feel your pain and to provide the comfort that you need. Let us take courage from this story of victory, but recognize it doesn't always end up that way. And be ready to give that to God no matter what. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, we do, God, just thank you for who you are and for what you've done in our lives. And Father, we just confess this morning with whatever trial we're headed into, God, that we need you. And we know that you're there, Father. We know that you're waiting. We know that Jesus is there with us. He's mapped out the course in front of us. He's the author of our faith and he's also the perfecter right there by our side. Offering strength, the ability to overcome and the ability to comfort by the power of your Holy Spirit. So Lord, help us to make sense of that in our lives and in our context this morning. And it's in his powerful, glorious name that we pray.